0: Hello, my friends. Today, we're talking to David White, the founder and president at Axio. And we discuss how David found his way into shaping many of today's cybersecurity best practices, how the digital threat landscape is evolving today, and the importance of constantly reassessing your security strategy for the future. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast.
1: I grew up in North Carolina, in Western North Carolina. Uh, first generation college student. Studied studied civil engineering and engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon way, way back in the day. It, you know, my... My first career was in robotics, so I did a master's degree in robotics and 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 worked at a startup that was doing robotic systems for nuclear weapons complex cleanup. So we we I, I toured some of the nation's most interesting real estate, and <laughs> we we had we had some teams and technologies deployed there, which was which was interesting and fun. And then um, you spend a lot of time in Nevada. I, actually leaders not Nevada because um you know that's that's where we want to send all the waste but it's not where we generated the waste for the most part right <laughs> so um, there there are other uh, shall we say hot spots around the country that that are that are where the weapons factories were built that interesting uh, that are an interesting legacy for us to clean up. It'll take decades and decades more work to do that and <clears throat> ultimately, you know, after after doing that for about ten years, I went back to the I went back to Carnegie Mellon at the Software Engineering Institute and and started and really started there in a in a business development role, um, serving as the account executive for key uh, commercial clients that they were doing research for. Did a lot of work with the auto industry in Germany, which was fascinating. Did a lot of travel in Germany, so that was a lot of fun. Um, and then ended up working in technology transition, sort of developing strategies for how the research lab at the university could, at, at, at the institute, could, could get the methods and techniques that they were building, that we were building, really, out into the, into the, into the world. Um, and through that, started working with a team in CERT, the research program for cybersecurity there, on a number of projects. Including this, what ultimately became a, a book that uh, that they were working on called the called the CERT Resilience Management Model. It wasn't really called that then, but they were like, "Here, we're gonna need a we're gonna need a transition strategy for this. So you should just read everything we're writing and start and start um, and start learning about this." So I did that, and I. I started doing my own kind of reading on the side and research, and, and sending them comments and ideas and proposed edits. And they're like, "You're in the wrong job, dude. You you should come <laughs> over here and help us write this because you have a knack for this and clearly have a passion for it." And so, you know, a couple of years later, my my name was on the cover of that book, and that was that was my the sort of beginning of my career in in um, operational risk and, and cybersecurity. So that was um, not expected. It was completely um, fortuitous, opportunistic, and I'm really glad that um, I stepped into the opportunity when it was presented because I'm having a blast.
0: That's amazing. So writing the book kind of sent you on your trajectory of a career in
1: security. Yeah. Yeah, that's well, that, that's crazy. You know, it takes it takes. I mean, it took us a couple of years to produce a. Uh, in the end of the day, it was an eleven hundred page book. I remember, wow. Addison Wesley complaining about having to use special paper so they could get it into their book presses <laughs> at the factory. But like a like, Bible with really thin <laughs> exactly, pages, <laughs> exactly. So yeah it was a blast and i learned so much and i got to do the you know i got to lead the initial work with companies that were that were uh, piloting that method and then ultimately using that method and i got to work with uh, some federal agencies on the same thing and so you know it was it was a lot of fun and then and then um in uh around 2010 2011 around around 2011 time frame i started doing a lot of work with the uh, electricity sector through the, de- through the Department of Energy and some work that we were doing there. And ultimately they asked, they asked me to serve as chief architect for a maturity model that they developed called the cybersecurity capability maturity model, which was released, which was really developed by the industry for the industry back in 2012. It was a fantastic collaborative project. I spent many, many long days and late nights in DC. Um, working with working with stakeholders from a lot of different utilities and the Department of Energy, and all of the big trade associations in electricity on you know, developing guidance that was compact and lightweight enough that it could be useful by a wide range of utilities—the largest utilities in the nation and the smallest utilities in the nation. So it was a really challenging project and. Uh, it was driven by the by the white house at the time who was very concerned about about security in the electricity in, in the electricity sector the power grid and oh um yeah we got, we got that out in in um june 2012 and yeah hundreds thousands of utilities have been using it since then to to help guide their cybersecurity programs it was a precursor to the NIST cybersecurity framework so the folks at the department of energy who worked on the project went on to the national security council and then um, uh, helped create the project that that led to the NIST cybersecurity framework and so that whole trajectory is has was really interesting for me to watch as part of my career from just being this guy who was like hey i have some ideas for this book you guys are writing how about this <laughs> Right. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's been a blast.
0: That's crazy. So you've, you've been like a driving force behind a lot of the modern best practices that are being used in security.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Who, Who knew that was going to happen? I sure didn't. Yeah. <laughs> um,
0: so when did Axio come in, come into the picture? Wow. So that's,
1: that's, that's another interesting story. I, I met so the company was founded by myself and Scott Canry. And, you know, Scott, I, at the time, I was at Carnegie Mellon University still in the, at the Software Engineering Institute. Scott was working for Aon, one of the world's largest commercial insurance brokers. And Scott was a real thought leader in the deployment of cyber insurance and other insurance products to help organizations uh, transfer their exposure associated with cyber risk and scott and i met at this really interesting dive bar in new york the very first time we met in person um and over at it, it, this bar they they serve uh they serve beer from the tap in 32 ounce cups. It's the only way they serve it. Wonderful. Yeah. They call them buckets. So you order beer by the bucket and the cups are so big that you've got to put both hands around it when it's full or it just sort of squeezes the beer out over the top. Um, Anyway, the the, uh, Scott and I met over a couple of beers um, and started talking about cyber risk. And, you know, at the, at the university at the time, we were still teaching people that, Look, risk transfer is not really an option for cyber. You've got to, you've got to, you know, mitigate, mitigate, uh, accept, monitor. Um, transfer is transfer is is really nascent. And what transfer I learned, meaning like cyber insurance, like cyber insurance, yeah, got it. And you know what I learned from Scott was was quite the contrary. It was still a, it was still a pretty immature. Uh, form of risk transfer at the time, and it's evolved a lot since 2013. <clears throat> but Scott and I started imagining a future where you know, security and risk leaders are making decisions about where to spend their limited resources. And so, do you buy a technology? Do you invest in process-oriented controls? Do you invest in administrative controls? Do you invest in risk transfer? How, as a security leader, do you make that call? No security leader has unlimited resources. And so how do you make a smart decision about where to put your next dollar as an investment to protect the organization and reduce its risk exposure? And um, that led to the thesis that around which Axio was created. So in 2013, we started this conversation. Um, I left the university and... and uh, uh, we started doing taking on some scrappy projects with clients um, to, to sort of bootstrap a set of activities. And then in 2015, we uh, signed our first major contract with a company and also closed on um, some seed financing. And we were off off to the races. And you know, in that in that interim, you know, Scott and I had been developing what we now call Axio three sixty and delivering it really in spreadsheet mode. Sort of a couple of experts running around the world helping people make good decisions about where to where to invest to protect their organizations from cyber risk. And um and now we have all of that in a in a in a methodology that's you know much, much better than it was back in twenty. 13, 14 and 15 and it's in a modern software as a service application and being used by um, more than a thousand organizations I think we have we have close to 5,000 users in our platform now um, so it's really um, it's been a really exciting journey and and we have so much more to bring to the marketplace um, in support of that mission that we're excited That's about. That's amazing.
0: Very cool, man. So you guys are kind of giving organizations the information they need to be smart about where they're spending for mitigating cyber risk.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, Adam, one of the things that that Scott and I have always said is it's, it's really about unlocking and making use of the information that you have inside the organization because nobody, almost nobody can come from outside your organization and tell you something that you that someone inside your organization doesn't already know about the risk that you're facing right? Because it's people inside your organization that understand how things are wired up. They understand what happens if I if I take this down or take this away, whether it's a machine or a server or even an endpoint. Like, How does that affect the business? I have no way of knowing that coming in from the outside. The people in your organization know that. And so we really developed a methodology that is for the masses that we can teach any organization to do on their own, or we have a professional services team that can come in and do it with and for them. But that's that was always our vision—a sort of a um, you know something for the masses, uh, as opposed to as opposed to a methodology for a select few. And um, and it's and it's working. It's yeah.
0: That's awesome. So can you explain to me, like I'm a five year old, yes, what it looks like to like how do you go about estimating the financial
1: strain of cyber risks sure yeah so our methodology is really straightforward and the first part of that methodology is just to think about you know what could go wrong and if if the security and risk leaders inside your organization are paying attention to anything, they're probably watching the threat landscape. And so they're seeing what's happening in the news, they're seeing what's happening in other organizations. And almost all of those people, I mean, you know, you probably do it yourself. When you read a headline, you're like, Oh man, what what if that happened to us? What would it be like here if that happened to us? Thank yeah. goodness that wasn't us, right? And every security and risk leader goes through that same thing. So you're you're processing all of this stuff through your head all the time, just based on what you see and read uh, and observe in and, and the threat landscape, whether it's whether it's open source or news or or trade association articles or. Um, maybe you're getting some classified briefings if you're in, in select critical infrastructure sectors, but you have a sense of what's going on in that landscape. And so the first step in our process is just developing a set of scenarios, we call them scenarios, of risks unfolding, right? And you know, our approach for this is to go top down, meaning we focus on on like affecting the business. So everything we try to do is in the language of the business. And so look if you're dependent on this factory, what could happen that could cause that factory to have to go online or what could happen that would cause that factory to have to curtail production or or reduce output or something, right? If you're if you have a lot of delivery contracts, we worked with a client where you know they had a there was a manufacturer they had a just in time delivery contract with one of their one of their major clients that calculated penalties in minutes like every minute they had a shipment that was late they paid i forget how much it was oh, a couple hundred bucks or something so wow you know you can you can imagine that for them looking from the top down at business impact like what they really want to know is what could happen here that would have us have that shipment be late, right? And that's very different than some legacy approaches that look from the bottom up and say, okay, let's go, let's run around to every asset in the organization and figure out what could happen to that asset. And then we sort of build up scenarios from that. That becomes a kind of boil the ocean process that very quickly gets divorced from the business impact. We go top-down, there are other methods that go top-up. Top-down is much easier. Right, because you're really talking to business leaders about what could affect the business. So that's number one. And step two is prioritize those. Look, you're never gonna you're never gonna do a thorough analysis on every risk you identify, and so we go through a prioritization uh, technique. We have a couple of techniques um, that are designed to leverage the experts' the expert judgment inside your own organization. We use a multi-voting technique. We also use a forced ranking technique. Those are the two most popular prioritization schemes we have, and we've got both of those built into our software. And so that gives you the sort of critical few that you then want to take the next step on. Now you could work your way through the whole list, but you've got to stop. You've got to start with the with the high priority items. So identify, prioritize, and then quantify. And we do quantification. We we developed uh, Scott and I in the early days of the company back when we were doing spreadsheet but we, back when we were slinging spreadsheets right we developed a list of of all of the common impacts that organizations face from cyber events and we mapped those into a framework that we that we still use today and so and now what we've done is for every one of those potential impacts we have one or more candidate simple math formulas on how you can think about the scale of that impact in your organization Right. And so it's simple things like, are we going to bring in an outside forensics team? Well, if you're going to bring in an outside forensics team, there are two really common, there are two really easy ways to estimate that. One is like, how big is the team? How long are they going to be here? How many hours are there in a day? And how much do we pay them by the hour? Right. That's just simple math. There's another, there's another technique that some forensics firm uses, some forensics firms use that says, you know, how many how many computers do we think we're going to have to do forensics analysis on, and how many hours do we think it's going to take per computer, uh, and what's our hourly rate? So that's just a different way to get at the same basic answer of what let's put a price tag on forensics, and then we have so we have candidate equations for every one of those impacts, and you can estimate the impact of an event by populating those estimated values into those into those formulas. You pick a formula pops up on the screen, you put in estimated values. And we also were really careful with our methodology to have people not get bogged down in a quest for precision. And so every one of those estimated values in one of our simple math formulas is uh has a minimum expected and maximum amount. So if i said adam what's your what's your negotiated rate at modern cto for forensics and you said oh dave it's you know $317.48 per hour. Well then we know that value. We can just type it into the s, s the expected value box, right? But if you said oh gosh i don't know we'd probably end up paying I don't know, three to three to seven hundred dollars an hour. It sort of depends on what else is going on in the world, how fast we can get somebody how how the extent to which our hair is on fire and things like that. <laughs> then we can just put that in. Okay, let's just estimate this at three to seven hundred. So that way you can work quickly through this process without getting bogged down in a quest for false precision. These are all estimates, right? And, and so that leads us to a bunch of equations that have a bunch of range values. and then on the back end, our software just boils all that up into and uses a Monte Carlo simulation to give you a range of values for the total event. And that's how we do it. It's really straightforward. And the, one of the beautiful things that, that our developers did with our software that I really love is they they created this way to edit, and actually build custom formulas. So if you said, yeah, we're not going to estimate it that way. Here's how we think about it in our organization. You could just start typing that in plain language and our system will turn it into an equation. And so what you end up in all cases, are equations that you can read. We found that that makes a huge difference for people who have to stand in front of these estimates inside their organization because right. if you can stand in front of something and somebody asks you a question about it and you can just look at it and say, well, yeah, we, we got it. We arrived at that in the following way. Then that's very different than if you're standing in front of a board out of in looking at some black box results that you have no idea how were calculated, Right. <laughs> So yeah. it allows our users to have the confidence of of uh, to stand in front of stand in front of those estimates, right? So, sorry, that was probably a really long winded answer to your question, but but that's but that's how we do it.
0: No, that was great. That gives me like a much clearer picture, not only of like how you do it, but like m- more exactly what you're trying to do. So. Earlier, you mentioned that it's like a SaaS platform that, that people can use. What does it look like on the UX side of things? Um, so you have all this methodology built in on the back end. Is it just like a pretty easy... They can just go down and fill in values in boxes and the number spits out?
1: And Absolutely.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. And with the explainability built in on top of that too, so that they can take it to
1: upper management. Right. Yeah. And um, so I think that our... Our UX team has done has done a fantastic job so far, and we have uh, we have some new folks on the team recently that are going to do an even incredible job, even more incredible job as we continue to evolve the platform. Because they've been working on some new reports that I've seen that uh, we've we've put in front of some some current and candidate clients that are really knocking people's socks off. So the, we're also Um, were committed to creating a method that didn't require users or consumers of the information to have a degree in statistics to understand. So we've come up with some really straightforward way to communicate complex concepts about impact of events. And we've come up with a proprietary way to aggregate those events and give an annual view of, of risk exposure that is uh, incredibly novel um, and founded in and founded in some really good academic research. And so, our output is also easy to understand.
0: That's awesome. So, something I've seen on Axio's website and materials, of kind of pretty often, is the four most critical questions for cyber risk. Can you take me through what those questions, who, first of all, who do they, who should be asking these questions? What, what is that like? What's the target audience of this?
1: Yeah, I think, um, so from my perspective, boards and executives should be asking this question. Right. And, and they should be asking it of security and risk leaders and so security and risk leaders should be asking those questions of their of their teams right so but i think that it's important for for an abstraction of that information to be presented all the way at the highest levels in an organization it really is the board's fiduciary responsibility to protect the organization's balance sheet and bottom line. And they can't really do that without understanding what's at risk. So question number one is, what's at risk? And we answer that using our quantification methodology. Because we want Folks to be able to answer that question using dollars and cents, the same language other people in organizations are using to talk about risk, as opposed to answering it in red, yellow, and green, which is how hmm. we've been answering it in the security space for a long time, right? So yeah. we'd like for people to be able to put down the crayons and <laughs> you know <laughs> pick up the calculators. Um, so that's the <laughs> that's that's the vision for for quantification. The The second question is, are we doing the right things to mature our cybersecurity program? you know there are there are a lot of assessments, including you know some of the assessments I worked on earlier in my career. Uh, there are a lot of great assessment instruments out there. We have many of those instruments loaded into our platform. We also support custom instruments. So if you know if if modern CTO had its own framework that you've developed for managing cybersecurity, you could load that into our framework or into our platform and use that. But the whole notion there is that assessments of your program or of your controls. Should not be once and done events. They should be continuous events, right? And so, and those assessments need to be backwards looking, current looking, and future looking. And the only way to accomplish that is to, when you're conducting an assessment, capture not only where you are today but also where you intend to be at a specific point in the future. And so by implementing assessments in that way, you get this essentially a story arc of where you've been because we you know you have all of that historical data in the platform, where you are today and where you're going in the future. It also gives you the ability to evaluate whether you've got enough budget to get where you think you should be at that point in the future, right? By through and so we have some Planning tools and other um, advanced advanced techniques in the platform to help you understand where you are on your journey and to plan that journey for your overall cybersecurity program and the deployment of controls to protect the organization. So that's answer two. How are we are we how are we maturing our program? Right. Question three is: Have we protected the balance sheet? So how much of that? How much of that risk that we're that we're facing, how much of that impact would flow to the organization's financial statements if we had a bad event? And the only way to answer that question, and this question is so important for boards to know the answer to, is to understand how your insurance portfolio would respond. Do we have the right kind of coverage? This is no different than thinking about, look, if you went out and bought, you know $250,000 house, right, but you only bought $100,000 worth of insurance, then chances are, if you lost that house to a fire, you wouldn't have enough coverage, (laughs) right? Yeah. Because pretty straightforward. Unless you paid two and a half times what it's worth or two and a half times what it would cost to replace, then you're underinsured. And you'd better have that money sitting in reserve, or you're probably looking at bankruptcy if you have a really bad thing happen to your house, right? And it's the same thing with organizations. Look, the resilience of an organization at the end of the day is driven by one thing. Do you can you afford to continue operating? can you make it through and afford to continue operating and the only way to answer that is financially and the way to answer it financially with respect to cyber risk is to understand what's at risk through quantification and then what's your capacity to transfer that so that you understand how much you've got to cover yourself right so that's question 3 is you know what what's at stake on the financial statements or balance sheets and then question 4 is what investment should we make? The threat landscape is changing. We, we all know that. We've seen it, we've seen dramatic shifts over the past over the past, you know, 12 to 24 months in the the prominence of ransomware as an event type. You know, a couple of years ago, everybody was wringing their hands about about PCI theft, credit card, credit card information theft, right? Have you heard when's the last time you heard people or read a bunch of headlines about credit card information theft? It's been a while, right? probably the the target yeah week. and that was what it was 2017 i think 20 yeah. 2016 2017 right and a while ago <laughs> exactly because that led to an enormous investment in in deploying end-to-end encryption to better protect credit card data in retailers right and so th- that investment was pretty clear not in the earliest days of that trend but it became pretty clear and a lot of retailers made the right investment and now we're in a situation where every organization is facing a ransomware threat and so we're scrambling to figure out what the right what the right investments are for that and tomorrow it'll be something else and ransomware is not all the it's not the only thing we have to worry about right but i'm just i'm using that as a point to say the threat landscape changes, and it's going to continue to change. These are human motivated, human perpetrated events, and so they're only ever going to be limited by the imagination and technical capabilities of humans to figure out a way to make money on this, <laughs> right? Yeah, and uh, and and that's forgetting for a second, nation states, but uh, <laughs> yeah. so the risk landscape changes, so. Optimizing your investment over time, or figuring out the right next spend—what's my next best move here? Right—is is an important question, and we strongly believe that those first three questions should inform the fourth question. Right? Absolutely, yeah. And so, uh, and we have ways to model that in our platform too. By Either by adjusting your insurance portfolio or, or modeling control changes and how they would affect the quantified scenarios or building plans for um, maturing your program and understanding the cost of, of, of that. So that fourth question is, is really about what's my, what's my optimal next best spend or next best move.
0: That was excellent, man. Let me just try and say them all at once so, okay. so the listener can remember. So we have like, what's at risk? How are we maturing our cybersecurity program? Is that, is that yep. correct as the second one? Nice. How are we protecting the balance sheet? And then what investments should we make in security? Yes. Yeah. Cool. All right. We got it. So <laughs> I want to get a little bit more into the ransomware stuff. Okay. So do are you able to offer your program, like Axios platform as an option for when a company is in a ransomware attack, can they use it to see whether or not they should just pay it and be done?
1: Is, is that like a use case? Yeah, you could certainly, you could certainly do that modeling. And, and I want to be careful because look, I, I have, I have the same kind of moral and ethical concerns that, that we all have about, about paying criminals. And we've also seen, in recent trends for criminals going back to the well for multiple demands, and so you know it turns out there's there's not a lot of integrity among thieves. Um, <laughs> the, but that said, you know there are some there are some cases where it could be compelling to make that payment, and certainly modeling an event out as part of the decision making process is one way to do that. Right, and look, I, I think that some of the most compelling reasons to pay involve maybe slowing the potential release of data that may have been stolen uh, that could that could dramatically and negatively affect people if it were disclosed right and so you can think about certain kinds of health records in that in that category right uh, at this point in time, I mean, if the attackers were, if if you if you're running good backups, there's probably not going to be a good reason to pay unless unless you're convinced it's going to take you longer to recover operations than it will to decrypt the data. And I, we saw that we saw that just this week with Accenture. Accenture um, made a really good showing. I don't know if you saw that in the news in the last couple of days, but Accenture announced that they had a ransomware attack and. They fully recovered and very swiftly recovered their operations in the part of the business that was affected from backups and they resumed operation. And it was sort of it was a blip. It made a couple of headlines and you know, they're off to running. So so good for them. It's great to see somebody of that size demonstrate the kind of resilience that we want organizations to have. But yes, you could build some financial models to help you make that decision. Absolutely. That's really cool. Yeah.
0: So a question I've, I've wanted to ask you in this interview relates to a while ago. We had on uh, Tony Cole, the CTO of Ativo Networks, um, and this dude is like an OG cybersecurity guy. He was running cybersecurity in the Pentagon on 9/11, and he also he also worked on the NIST framework. Yep, um, did some work with MITRE as well. Anyway, it was it was a pleasure listening to him talk. But he he was talking about how there's like. $140 billion spent on cybersecurity tools each year. And with all of these resources pouring into cybersecurity, it's, I, I think it's easy to ask the question, why is it still so hard to stay one step ahead of back bad actors?
1: So, so my answer to that question is that it's not just a technology problem. And as a discipline... We, as in the cybersecurity world, are not yet mature enough as a discipline to recognize universally that it's not simply a technical problem. And so, and it's really easy to be convinced because it does involve technology. It's really easy to be convinced that, you know, uh, this new whiz-bang technology is part of the solution. The problem is that, you know, I, I think of the... um have you ever been to the RSA conference out in San no, Francisco? No, I've not. Yeah, so it, it's an interesting place. It's an interesting event, really interesting event, and um, they have a trade show. The trade show has thousands of cybersecurity technology vendors, thousands. And so I think of it as the silver bullet bazaar, right? Because you can <laughs> walk, you can you can just look at one silver bullet after another, and Look, all of these technologies are critically important as part of an overall strategy. And none of them or the accumulation of all of them are not going to solve this on their own. It is a people, process, and technology problem. And so we can't solve it by technology alone. God, I wish I could remember the guy's name. I was reading an interview with uh, somebody recently. Um, it'll 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 come to me maybe in a minute. And he was like, Look, it's not a technology problem. If it was a technology problem, we would have solved it 15 years ago. <laughs> right it's just not yeah. it takes more than that and so i think that's that's the answer is that there, there's a lot of money still being spent chasing chasing silver bullets and they're part of the solution but they're not the entire solution
0: that makes sense and so while it is while it does come down to being a people problem i think aside from education obviously as a wonderful part of the solution I think there's still definitely a role for technology to play in terms of making it easier for for the people
1: to to have good practices, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Please don't hear anything I said as saying that it's not (laughs) a technology problem. All I'm saying is it's not only a technology problem. (laughs) Right, 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 right. right. It's not something that we can solve just with technology. It's also something that we can't solve without technology, right? Uh, It's just that we need more than technology. Um and look the uh, the the other the other part of that dynamic is we've got, look, according to the Wall Street Journal, there are now more than 65 nation states that are in invect- in, that are investing in offensive cyber weapons. and you can't have that kind of investment at the top of the pyramid without it trickling down. So yeah. all of those investments in offensive cyber weaponry are um, raising the skill level, the capability level and the tool the tools that are available across the criminal enterprise. Because all of those technologies are being built by companies and the people who work at those companies go and work at other companies. Sometimes they leak out eternal blue, which was behind the, you know, not Petya event. That was a, that was a, a nation state built weapon that was stolen and then used against us. And it was built by the U S for those of us following along. But, you know, you, you can't keep that stuff in a bottle. Right. Right. These aren't like these aren't like bombs that once they explode, you can't really tape them back together and then use them on the other guy. Cyber weapons, once they're out there, they're out there. And so this investment by nation states is raising the water level of skills. I think of it as trickle down capabilities, trickle down attack capabilities. And, um, you know, that means that this is this is going to it's like treading water to stay in place requires continuous input of resources. So even to, to maintain where you are right now from a cyber posture in an organization requires the continuous input of, of resources and to move forward, to get better requires even more resources. So we're going to continue to spend it. We just don't yeah. are, Right.
0: That makes sense. And, uh, I mean, as you're saying, these attacks are getting more and more advanced and, um, just earlier this week, we had on the CTO of Avast, um, and I don't know if you're familiar with him as a person, but he is a he self-described himself as a hardcore AI scientist guy. Okay, um, that was his introduction. <laughs> nice, and like he's a professor in in AI at Czech University, and um, he was talking about adversarial AI in the cybersecurity space. And the how the main problem that presents is it increases the scale at which attackers can attack because all they need to do once they have whatever scheme in place is just buy more compute power and give, give their AI algorithm more room to run with. And as a result of that, the only way to really fight it is by having really good security AI where the same kind of uh what's the word the same process works you can throw more compute at it and it'll do a better job and the amount of power creep that's that's there thinking about that it's just insane I I just have like an image in my head of giants fighting you know <laughs> right um, and just getting bigger and bigger as they go to to match each other's strength and that just sounded so crazy to me and I was just curious have you Like been been spending much time thinking about the adversarial AI and the way that's impacting the security landscape.
1: Well, look, I I think um, you know I haven't really thought of it in AI terms. I think of it more generically as as the automation of those attack tools, right now. Intelligence and automation. I think of. I think of. I think of AI as sort of intelligence crossed with automation, and and maybe that's. You know, he he might dispute me on that, but that's my. <laughs> that's that's how I might describe it to a five-year fifth grader, right? As you back to our earlier point, but I think that's fair. Yeah. Look, automation is a problem, and because. Uh, it's pretty inexpensive in modern attack tools to try out attacks on thousands of different organizations in, in one day. right? And so um, certainly the, the incorporation, to the extent that it's happening, the incorporation of artificial intelligence into um, an evolving automated attack tool is of enormous concern. And do I believe that there's a role for AI in on the, on the protect side? Absolutely there is because it's only through, through algorithms and, and other massively scalable techniques that we can ingest all of the signals available to start to have better visibility, detection capability, and learning of our of our environments and the and the the um, uh, attacks that attacks that we're facing. So I'm a big believer in that. I, I I agree that you know we've got to deploy that on the protect side as well. Uh,
0: another company that we've had on the podcast before because we've we've just had a lot of security companies on because as as we've covered it's a huge space you, you've been to the silver bullet Expo yeah exactly um, <laughs> and that that's where I've gotten a lot of my context around security from and so one of these companies that's come on is called firemon and they focus on network security uh, and their VP Tim put on the show was talking about a report they released called the Future of Network Security Report. And it focused a lot on zero trust. Mm -hmm. And I think zero trust is, it obviously seems like such a great way to conduct your security, but it also seems really hard to implement in some use cases. Like how earlier you were talking about the manufacturing company that had a just-in-time delivery contract. And uh, so I was thinking like, especially in when you're trying to do manufacturing automation, the manufacturers and the suppliers and the distributors down the chain, they all have to share their data to an extent in order to get like the full efficiency out of their automation. So how do you think about trying to implement zero trust in areas where you implicitly have to trust your partners?
1: Yeah. So this, this is a, this is a challenge and it's, it's one of those, um, you know, I think I think uh, least trust might be a better moniker, but it didn't pass the marketing committee, right? <laughs> and so, so zero trust is the name. And I think um the uh, it, it's it's funny um, a year or so ago, I was I was in a I was in a conversation with a couple of folks from the from the security world who I, who I deeply admire and respect and like, oh, this whole this zero, star, zero trust, there's no such thing as zero trust. It's like this mythical asymptotic approach. You can't get to zero trust. There has to be some basis of trust. There's got to be something you trust at the core, right? So zero trust is a misnomer. And I was like, yeah, it's a misnomer, but it's a really catchy marketing phrase for a strategy. The, the way I like to think about it is, look, one of, one of our clients, manages a, a really complex operation and one of the core one of the core premise of one of the core premise of their strategy is at any one point in time at least one end point in our environment is being controlled by an adversary so they take that as a given wow and they've built their entire security strategy around that as a given That at any one point in time, at least one computer on their network is being controlled by an adversary, right? And so when I think about zero trust, that's the story I think about because then that causes you to question data on the network that you wouldn't normally question to question identities on the network that you wouldn't normally question, right? Many organizations have a security strategy that, that we think about as a hard shell and GUI center where once you're in, you're in and you can do anything, right? If you're assuming that at least one computer on the network is being controlled by an adversary, you can't have that GUI center, right? You can't allow anyone to do anything once they're through the castle gate. And, for me, that's the sort of core idea behind zero trust. And and that I really like. I think it's a I think it's a sound security strategy. And I think zero trust is a really catchy name, but but it's a little bit of a misnomer from my view. Now now I some mean, zero I think- trust fanatics are probably going to debate me on that. And, I, and, <laughs> and and you know they probably know more than I do anyway, so that's okay. But um yeah, that's that's my view. Well, I think
0: that's a really smart way to think about it and really uh brings the phrase zero trust to be even truer when you're assuming that there's already an adversary in the space because yeah then you're not trusting anyone But yeah i think that's a that's a trend that's definitely coming out more in the security landscape today of not having that GUI center because we're seeing attacks like like that was kind of the detriment of the solar winds attack right that the attacker was in there and they were able to move laterally and escalate their privileges. And if they had more of a focus on monitoring the data inside and not letting the center be so gooey, then that right. wouldn't have happened.
1: Yeah. And a lot of the, a lot of those efforts, I'm, I'm really a fan of because they are about hardening the center. And, you know, that's also the thing that we're seeing in ransomware to go back to the ransomware conversation. Um, the kind of things that are necessary in a network to to inhibit lateral movement also protect you from the scale of a ransomware attack. Because if a ransomware attacker is unable to get to everything, then right. it makes it harder for them to take everything down, right? So you can limit the impact of an attack by limiting limiting the lateral movement, sort of limiting the blast radius, I think of it. And so so all of those efforts are are really important for our security future.
0: That's really, that's really important to think about. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I I just want to make sure if there's anything that we didn't cover that you want to make sure we hit on or any plugs you want to give for Axio, like, are you guys hiring right now?
1: what what are, you, what are you looking to get out to the world, man? We are hiring. We have a software development team. Look, we're 100 onshore software development. Mm. Um, our software development team is headquartered here in Atlanta, where I live. But we're not limiting. You know, the the whole um, uh, job market has become national during during the pandemic. So you're not limited to Atlanta, but we're certainly. But that but that's where but that's where we're headquartered from a software development perspective so we are actively seeking developers we have a professional services group we're actively actively hiring professional services folks um we're hiring in the marketing space we're hiring in the in the sales space we have a job we have a careers page on our website so if you're interested in working with us uh, please visit that careers page and because we are always looking for always looking for great people Absolutely. Um, from a plug perspective, oh gosh, we um, you know we recently released a uh, we recently released um, a a service a sort of a, a service a deployment of our product really that is that is designed to help organizations get their heads around ransomware as a risk, and it includes a deep dive on ransomware controls. Um, we built the ransomware assessment in collaboration with, with a large insurance company, leveraging what they've learned from a couple hundred claims in the past year. Uh, so they certainly have a lot of great visibility from that. We also leveraged all of the, all of the great guidance that's come out of, of DHS CISA. So we have a ransomware preparedness assessment that is available for free. You can visit Axio.com and find out how to get access to that. We also have a ransomware modeling exercise that we can conduct with an organization to help you understand the potential impact. This is also a really great way to understand um, some of those and uncover some of those dependencies in different parts of your operation that you might not be mindful of. Things like um, you know, Colonial Pipeline discovered during their event, where an IT-only event took down the OT side of the network and thereby the p- and thereby the pipeline right because they were concerned about those dependencies in operation and some potential porosity between those two networks from everything we know I don't have any inside information on that but I'm um, I've I've read all the same stories that you have I'm sure <laughs> right and then we have an improvement planning improvement planning activity that follows on that so for any organization that is really trying to follow the guidance that came out of the white house a couple of weeks ago for how organizations and and business leaders should be thinking about and responding to ransomware uh we have we have a product available to help you out with that uh, that we're really excited about and and it's also a great way to uh sample the full axio methodology that we have uh in our platform mm-hmm.